This is the Squared Goal Podcast with Mark Morris and Jared Meruyama. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Squared Co. Podcast. I am your host, Mark Morris, and with me again, Mr. Jared Mariyama. You know, before you say anything, Jared, I'm just going to say that the I think the nicknames are officially done for. I don't even know what you're talking about anymore. So far <laughs> in the past. <laughs> I know. It, it was fun while it lasted, but I think it is come and gone. Um, yeah, but definitely has. before we get our guest on for the day, I wanted to just mention something really quick. Give a thanks to the listeners. Um, over the mm-hmm. past, within the past few days, we actually hit a very small accomplishment. Um, <laughs> I shared this with you, Jared, but we uh-huh. got over 1,000 listens to our podcast. And we've only been around for a couple months. So I know there's some podcasts that exist that will reach those numbers within the first day of an episode. Um <laughs> Yeah, they'll get that on a single episode, but it took us a little while, but it's still, it's a little victory. And I just wanted to say thank you to everybody who has listened to one podcast episode or all of them. Um, Hopefully, you know, we get to 2000 a little bit quicker and then our numbers just continue to grow. But I wanted to say thank you and share that with everybody. So how did, how did you get that number? Because I was trying to figure it out. Like that means a thousand plays on the first yeah so it's a thousand streams and or downloads to it's it's our channel it's not in a single episode because mm-hmm. that would be right. very right. impressive we aren't there yet not but um close. yeah yeah it's uh i don't know if it's visible for everybody but when i log in and can like upload and edit stuff on our soundcloud page it'll show yeah. me there's like stats, you know, similar to a Facebook fan page. I think you get right, certain right. analytics to play with. Um, yeah, one of them is your total listens, and we are over officially over a thousand. So thanks again. <laughs> How cute. <laughs> um, so with that being said, I want to bring on our guest. Uh, I've been following him for a little while, and I actually got to meet him in person over Comic-Con. His name is Anthony Petrie. What's going on, Anthony? Welcome to the show. Hey, guys. Thanks so much for having me on. I feel like I'm a part of uh, podcasting history now that you're at a, a thousand. But if, <laughs> you're, if your listens decline after this, I take no responsibility. I don't think that's possible, so don't worry. You're good. <laughs> right. That would be interesting if, like, the numbers went in reverse. Like, yeah. You could, you could take started, back your listens. Yeah, taking back their listens. I don't... Yeah. Well, yeah. I apologize in advance if that happens. <laughs> I, I, it would be, like, unliking a picture, I guess, or a post. But, uh, yeah, I don't mm. know if that's possible. Nope. You know, Sorry, downloads are down, though. Crazier stuff has happened. That's right. I'm sure. I'm sure there's there's <laughs> ways. Um, but I mentioned that I ran into you, or actually, I went and sought you out at Comic Con. <laughs> um, you were on a list of artists that I wanted to actually introduce myself to and connect with. Um, so, just before we get started, I wanted to ask you a little bit about Comic Con in general. Uh, is this a a convention that you do regularly, San Diego specifically? Uh, this is this was the second year uh, I actually showed at uh, San Diego Comic Con. I shared a booth mm-hmm. with NC Winters, uh, a fellow 
pop culture artist. Mm-hmm. And um, this year went really, really well. I've been going to the convention as an attendee for, I don't know, eight, eight or nine years. And then mm-hmm. last year uh, was the first time that we had gotten a booth there. And it went okay. It wasn't super great. I think it was it was our first time there, and people weren't really sure where to find us, and we're in a kind of a weird section. And this year went really, really great there, uh, mm-hmm. exhibiting. But normally, uh, I'll do New York Comic Con. That's the one I've been doing for a few years now. Mm-hmm. What? So, what do you think the big difference was between last year and this year that made it um, that much better for you? Honestly, I'm not sure. I think. You know, last, we're, we're, we're in, it's such a fickle show. We're in a really weird section, like the fantasy illustrator section, and that's not really something that I would classify either of us as. Do you have no control over where they place you? That's just no, kind of luck of the draw? Yeah, wherever they can squeeze you in. I think it's really hard to get a, a booth there. Yeah. So they kind of plop you wherever they can fit you, and for us, it's in between like the weird paintings of Lord of the Rings and fairies. <laughs> Uh, which, make, which, you know, it's not really our audience. Um, <laughs> yeah. I think that was, and it's like at the very beginning of the convention center. So it's one of those run through aisles, you know, when people, yeah. when the con opens, people are like sprinting through all the empty aisles and those are mm-hmm. kind of the, the pass through <laughs> aisles. Um, but I think the, the difference this year was probably people remembered where we were um, mm. from trying to find us last year. Um, and I think it just made it a lot easier to, to, to find us there. So do you have any, sorry, go ahead, Jared. Oh, I was just going to say, if you can talk a little bit about what did you have this year at your booth? Was it like lessons learned from last year and you brought different things or is it kind of the same merchandise that you have uh, sort of standard? Uh, so last year, since it was my first time sending all of my inventory to the other side of the country, uh, there was a lot of gigantic financial <laughs> mistakes made with how much <laughs> shit that I actually needed to bring uh, that coincided with how much it cost to send it there and to send it back. So learning from those mistakes last year really adjusted and streamlined the amount of product and the type of product that I brought there, uh, which made shipping obviously way cheaper, but also enabled, enabled me to move inventory and get it out of the booth. Uh, which was really good. Uh, mm-hmm. Also had like kind of like really ro- low run exclusive screen prints that people were were running to every day to get because there was wasn't a lot of them. I think that that helped a lot. Also, um, pins. I brought a ton of pins with me. Those are gigantic now for some strange reason. Yeah. Um, and just some random original sketches that I had been kind of shilling out over Instagram the weeks prior. So do you, is there any way for you to gauge like specifically people that go there because they follow you online um, versus just somebody who randomly passes by your booth and likes one of the prints you have on display? Yeah, I think that's kind of the biggest difference for me personally between San Diego Comic-Con and New York Comic-Con. San Diego is kind of a home territory for people that collect posters and the mm-hmm. stuff that I do and the 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 arena that my work kind of lives in. Whereas New York there, that, that collector base really isn't that as strong there. I get a lot of new customers who are coming to New York comic con. They're like, Oh my God, I've never seen stuff like this before. And and we do really well there. Mm -hmm. Because the other big difference is you guys in California have 
comic conventions literally every friggin' weekend out there. <laughs> and it's all the same it's, people that, that go to them. And I feel like, you know, it, it's harder to sell stuff to them when you're constantly seeing the same customers every weekend. Whereas in New York, we don't really have a lot of conventions in the Northeast. There's mm-hmm. Boston Comic Con, which is pretty small. Rhode Island Comic Con, which is even smaller. And what else? Like New Jersey Comic Con, which is like not big at all. So New York is our big, New York is like the East Coast San Diego Comic Con. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So all the people that don't really get opportunities to head out West, that's that's their big chance to go and get all that nerd stuff that they've been wanting <laughs> for so long that, that might be difficult for them to get online. So the big, the big difference is regular customers in San Diego that I need to cater new stuff to and New York where I have new customers who don't know who I am uh, who I can sell an entire catalog of work to. Hmm. So at New York Comic Con, do they not? There's just not a big poster artist presence there. There it there, there is now. Well, you mean hmm. people that live there? Okay. Do you, you mean people that live in New York or collectors? Oh no, 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 the the exhibitors at the New York Comic Con. There, there, there's been a growing one because we have this area that's kind of designated for collectibles and stuff called the Block. And I'm sure you, you guys probably talked about this with. Uh, with Whalen and Perillo, because they we they they have a booth there also. It's just, just kind of like designated area where people that make unique toys, posters, collectibles are concentrated in. That people kind of gotcha at this point go to New York Comic Con in search of, uh, and a lot all the poster guys are kind of uh, saturated in that space in the, in okay. that gallery space in there. So there, you can there is a spot for the poster guys there, and it's it's growing. And it's super popular for New York. I can. I, I'm going to ask a question. I, I've asked this before <laughs> of the other. Mark and I have been doing this back and forth lately, where we keep cutting each other off. So I'm trying to. I'm trying to signal on the video feed now when I have a question. So that's, just, just throw up your middle finger when yeah, you want to go. That, that doesn't mean know. for you to stop talking. That just means I'm going to go next. Uh, so I've asked this before, and without getting into specifics or anything, are the cons uh, are they worthwhile for you financially? Are they more of a promotional thing? Like, how does it fit into your sort of overall repertoire? San Diego, I'd probably put that as a good promotional opportunity, not only mm-hmm. to showcase my work catalog and portfolio, but also to make connections with other large businesses that show there and mm-hmm. who might be walking around as well. Uh, that's that's another big difference between kind of the East Coast and West Coast cons. You've got all the big movie studios and toy companies and all the big corporate guys are out in San Diego walking the floor, having booths and showing stuff. And for me, it's the important thing. And and my biggest goal out there is to get out of the booth, shake some hands, give out some business cards. I have like little mini portfolios that I had printed up and just introduce myself and and to make those connections out there. Mm -hmm. Whereas in New York, I literally live down the block from the Javits Center, so there's mm-hmm. zero overhead for me to do that show. Right, I yeah. schlep all of my stuff down there, like on a hotel <laughs> cart, and then <laughs> sell all of it. So it's just all, you know, that one is the money making one for sure. So I think it's a matter of um, how much the overhead is and, and location. I only do those two conventions, though, so I mean, there might be more opportunities for me to explore convention wise that I'd like to look into going into the future. Yeah. But those are, I mean, those are definitely, they're, they're two really different conventions, but they they work well together for yeah. me. So you, before we move on uh, 
to the next topic. I'm just going to say this out front that um, <laughs> Weird. you have a very, very diverse uh, port like creative portfolio. Oh, so <laughs> I'm going to ask this with like every different type of project sure. um, as like the first question. And it's going to be, how did you get into blank? So okay. the next uh, series of questions will be, and you mentioned this uh, um, during your talk about the conventions. How did you get into the screen printing poster world? Is this something that like you sought after and wanted to get into or did a gallery or a specific client approach you um, with a screen print poster in mind? Yeah, I think uh, when I first got into that scene, I was working uh, full time at Reebok. I was a footwear designer and graphic designer there. Mm -hmm. And at the end of the day, I would come home and I would just want to draw nerdy stuff that I liked. <laughs> um, and at the time, I hadn't, I didn't know what Mondo was or Gallery 88 or really like what that pop culture scene. I didn't even know what existed. I just knew that yeah. I liked GI Joe and I wanted to draw GI Joe. You know, <laughs> um, so that was more of um, kind of a, a a release for me after work to be able to offset this like corporate work that I enjoyed doing, but I wasn't super passionate about in terms mm -hmm. of screen printing. I, at the time I had kind of started working on some gig poster stuff through a friend and we had like a little screen printing studio that we'd print posters in. And then once I was doing these pop culture inspired fun work, I was just literally posting them online for, I don't know, no reason at all, just to put them on, on the internet. And mm -hmm. then, you know how that stuff happens. Someone reblogs it or tweets it or it gets around and spreads. And, you know, at the time, this was maybe like 20, 2009 or around that time before every single person in the entire world was doing all that, that yeah. sort of thing. So, <laughs> so those things caught fire pretty easily. And it was really a matter of uh, Gallery 1988 just getting in touch and saying, hey, you know, we like your stuff. You want to do a show with us? I was like, oh, yeah, sure. I don't even know who you guys are, but it sounds fun. <laughs> uh, so I literally just, I worked on their first gallery show. It was like the memes show or something. I did the poster in a night. I went to the screen printing studio, screen printed it myself, mailed them out the next day, and they were like, holy shit, that was the fastest we've ever fucking seen. <laughs> like, do you want to do this Breaking Bad show? And I was like, oh, yeah, sure. I've never even seen the show. So the next day, I watched like a bunch of episodes, did the poster, sent it out, and like, oh, my God, this is like ridiculous. So do you want to do the <laughs> Avengers show? I was like, oh, yeah, sure, I'll do the Avengers show. And it kind of <laughs> kept spiraling and spiraling until all these posters came out at the same time, roughly, and that kind of jump-started you know, where I am today with the, with the screen poster stuff. Do you remember, you were talking about um, how some of your images earlier on would kind of went viral. Do you remember like the biggest, uh, the one that like got the most attention or there was there one or like a, a period of time when like you got noticed or one of the images really took off? I think it was some really, really shitty Captain America drawing. <laughs> yeah, anything Marvel is just going to like blow up like crazy. Yeah. I think that might have been it. And then once, you know, once I started getting into the screen printed poster stuff, it was probably the the official Avengers poster that kind of got people 
uh, reading my name in places. Do you, um, so now that you have been doing screen printing for a while, um, I think it's relatively recently, maybe within the past few years, you had a solo show at, I believe it was Gallery 1988? Yeah. Was that the... It was like maps and charts. Yeah, mm-hmm. I've had I've had two of them actually, charts one oh. and charts two. Oh, um, there you go. <laughs> yeah, they were they're they're mostly map location architecture based um, screen prints that are within the world of pop culture. There was one th- uh, print in particular that I thought was really cool, oh, and God, I remember. Are you, you going to say Jaws? <laughs> no, I'm not going to say Jaws okay. because you can't eat the Jaws poster, okay. but you made a poster <laughs> that you could eat. Oh, the Willy like, one. Yeah. Um, is, how did you come up with this idea? Because uh. I think you're the only one that I've ever seen kind of apply this in the pop culture art gallery world. Uh, well, I appreciate that because I feel like that's one of my like most underrated posters was the one that you could literally eat. Um, I think people didn't <laughs> like it because they had to like eat it or throw it away because it was food. Uh, and that, that drives collectors completely insane. Um, but that, that poster kind of goes along with a lot of the other experiential posters that I do, like mm-hmm. um, I did this for the last show, I did a huge uh, Iron Man hologram. It was this okay. giant 24 by 36 3D hologram mm-hmm. of the inside of Tony Stark's helmet. Um, oh, cool. There was the Edible Wonka poster. There was, um, there was a couple others that were more more or less pushing the boundaries of what a poster could be. Um, so how, how do you come up with some of these ideas? Because I don't, I mean, th- this might exist elsewhere, but I don't, no, no other artist or other um, creatives really come to mind that are doing anything like this at all. <laughs> uh, I think it's a matter of just having an idea and trying to make, approaching it from a a more of a product design perspective like Mm -hmm. instead of you know a lot of times when we make posters it exists on this two-dimensional plane on our computer screen and the end product is a piece of paper but even though it's flat you can still hold it and touch it and interact with it and I think there's a lot more things that we can do with something that is tangible than just look at it. So another another poster, for example, is I did a Predator poster for the last show mm-hmm. um, that was thermochromic. So like just like Predator would go invisible in the movie, mm-hmm. if you if you touch the poster, your heat would make the ink disappear. Oh wow! So it's, really cool. it's just a matter of having an idea and doing your your search for materials and printing capabilities and trying to make a concept come to life in, in the most practical way possible. Because I think like for the Predator poster, I knew that I wanted to do Predator because it's my favorite, favorite movie mm-hmm. and I want to do something special for it. So I kind of just say, all right, what if it, what if the poster disappeared like the Predator? That seems like something that's ridiculous, but once you have a really silly idea, it's a matter of, okay, how do we take that and make it practical? Okay, maybe the poster doesn't disappear, but maybe the ink disappears. Mm-hmm. How does ink yeah. disappear? Um, maybe with, when it reacts to heat. Okay, do, is there, are there any inks that when you touch it, 
the ink will disappear. And then it's a matter of, yes, those exist. Now oh. let's find the <laughs> 10 different kinds that exist and see if they can be screen printed. So then you buy a bunch of different ink and you send them to the screen printer and they run tests. And they say, this one works, this one doesn't, this one looks this way. And it's a, you know, it's a matter of trial and error and testing and coming up with concepts and then trying to make them practical. So do you look at uh, doing prints then, like a flat print, just like a poster, like every other boring artist out there? Um, <laughs> it, it, do you find that that is limiting? Like you, you have a background in a lot of uh, merchandise and, and uh, products. Uh, is that, would you say, where this sort of interest in pursuing uh, these kind of alternative takes comes from? Oh, absolutely. Because I think most artists would see their poster as an image that they created. But for me, it's going to be the end product that someone is going to buy and own and touch and have. So if you can at any time activate someone's other senses aside from just sight with a product, I think it's going to be a more successful product. I don't think that means every single poster needs to be edible. I don't <laughs> think every, every single poster needs to be have thermochromic ink. But what I think it does mean is that you have the ability to, to make a concept, to come up with a concept and carry it through to every phase of the final product. So yeah. I could have just made a Predator poster and people will be happy that it's a Predator poster. But what can elevate that product? What can take the concept of Predator in a pop culture space and make it more interesting and make it a better product. Mm -hmm. So when you're doing these uh, like specialty posters, is this, do you kind of use this as a variant or is this the only way you can get this poster? Uh, for the most part, I try to make them the main poster as opposed to doing mm -hmm. variants because it's the main idea. Yeah. I think a lot of times people will make variants because they have to, <laughs> or because like they want to make more money, which is yeah. fine. It's I'm, that's not a criticism at all. But instead of, I'd rather in, instead of making a a variant where I hit the desaturate button on a poster <laughs> or something, <laughs> yeah, I'd rather focus the attention towards the main idea and focus whatever money I have and whatever um, whatever the concept is on that, that one, that one singular piece, the, the, the exception being the Willy Wonka one, I wanted to have a poster that you could buy, but I also wanted that, that secondary, um, print that you could eat as a fun thing. And even that one, <laughs> even that one that started out as, okay, I want to do a Willy Wonka poster, but you have to eat it. So that started <laughs> out as I just wanted to do one poster that was huge that everyone would need to eat at the show. <laughs> that, 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 and that was really difficult. So it was a matter of coming up with that idea and then scaling it back to the form, you know, the secondary print that was small. And I did make a huge poster for it that was edible, but it was so fragile. It, I, I couldn't find a way to ship it to California intact. So that was like, it, it just, yeah, that, the, the shipping part of it was the, was the toughest part, believe it or not. Well, that, so that was my next question. Uh, what was the size of this poster, the edible one? Uh, it was small. It was only like eight by ten. And but you did you do one at size of twenty four by thirty six? Eighteen by twenty four. I did oh, one at eighteen, 18 by, by twenty four. Yeah, <laughs> and then that was the big one. And then it was, you know, the substrate is basically a sugar base, so it needed to 
it got so heavy and so soggy that it couldn't stay upright for very long. It needed to kind of lay <laughs> yeah. flat until you were ready. So there was just no way that this was going to get shipped to California. And so then me and my dog just sat on the couch and we ate, we both ate it. <laughs> <laughs> so, sounds like a fun uh, Sunday afternoon. Yeah it, yeah, it didn't taste great, but it was fun. <laughs> was that an expensive process? Oh, yeah, it was ridiculous. Because yeah. <laughs> yeah, I had to buy all these special printers and special inks and special papers. Um, wow. But, you know, the co- it's the thing for me about the chart shows, I think if you take any one individual poster, you could, you could very easily critique it and find a, a lot of things that aren't, that don't make it the best poster in the world. But for me, those shows are more of kind of a proof of concept in a way where looking at the show from a bigger perspective, the concept of, of charts and maps and, and how yeah. they relate to pop culture and then pushing the, the limits of what you can do with mm-hmm. two dimensional art and making these special posters, um, that that are that still exist as posters but are special in their own way yeah that's something that we've talked about a little bit in the past on this show um a few times where it's you know how important is it to have a really good theme for the the overall show so with your series this this charts show it it actually like tells a good story um the gallery is telling this story within pop culture and it really makes sense um, yeah, it's a, it's a really cool idea. And I love the fact that you're getting really creative with the different printing methods. Um, well, I was just going to ask, we've, we've talked about this also before, and I kind of like to ask all the artists about it. You're doing some very different things with the prints that sort of elevate the, the form, if not completely sort of changing the concept of what a print could be with so many places in the print business so many artists in the print business do you think the that the industry not you per se but the industry will reach a saturation point or has it reached a saturation point and then are these more um alternative approaches to prints what sort of the future do you think for for this for this kind of uh, a gallery show say i think sometimes the space can feel a little bit crowded but I think it feels saturated mostly for the people that are trying to break into that industry. Mm-hmm. I think um, the, the goal for us really isn't to keep selling posters to the same people over and over again. I think the small niche that it is will continue to grow and mm-hmm. get more customers involved in that, especially when they start branching out to shows like, like I just talked about with New York Comic Con, it, people that come there that don't really have that every weekend exposure to comic cons, they come there and they see these posters that they didn't even know existed. And mm-hmm. now all of a sudden they're a collector. So yeah, at times it feels like everyone's doing the same shit constantly, mm-hmm. but also the people that are good, the people that are really pushing creativity, the people that are consistent and the people who are relentless with putting their work out there are always the ones that you're going to see uh, rise to the top, so to speak, um, mm-hmm. simultaneously mm-hmm. while garnering a larger audience of people who are interested in this stuff and have a higher appreciation of art. And I think just to circle back to the the charts concept, I think the other main idea for charts was to appeal to people who don't necessarily want movie posters on their wall. Mm-hmm. So if you take, for example, people that are doing like not necessarily just Mondo, but any kind of licensed poster stuff, 
that is movies with the characters' faces and likenesses and the titles on them. Those are beautiful posters, but not everyone wants to hang Mel Gibson in their living room, you know? And that, <laughs> I don't, and, yeah. Yeah, and to me, that seems like a very masculine approach to, to posters, and I mm-hmm. feel like there's a bigger base there that likes these movies mm-hmm. that, that wants to hang art in their house that isn't pictures of flowers that speaks to the things that they like that doesn't have character faces on them. And I think that's where the strength of charts comes in because the, I'll tell you honestly, like most of the people that buy that predator poster are females because they like predator also, mm-hmm. but they don't want to hang this monster with a pussy face on their wall <laughs> or pictures of Arnold Schwarzenegger up, you know, they just want yeah. like a cool map. So their mm-hmm. first and foremost, their maps, their diagrams and blueprints and then they have this secondary element of being movie and pop culture related. Right. Now, you studied design in school. Is that correct? You went to uh, Rhode Island School of Design? Yeah. Yeah, I went to um, RISD and I majored in graphic design uh, while I was there. I kind of also took as many industrial design shop classes as I could also. But, right. Yeah, I graduated with, uh, with graphic design. So... Uh, and I kind of want to go back to that because that's that's pretty that's an amazing school, and I kind of want to <laughs> talk about that a little bit. But <laughs> did the charts thing sort of represent a perfect uh, coming together of of these two skills of the yeah. illustration side and the design side? Did you feel that when you were doing it, or was it just a good concept? Uh, I think I just gravitate towards that more design aesthetic. Not to mention that a lot of the work that I do during the day for for my regular corporate work, especially at the time working at Reebok or even mm-hmm. stuff I do today working at Nickelodeon, is a lot of technical work, building things that are 3D and doing uh, spec sheets and technical drawings. So that that is just an area that I'm super comfortable with. And right. it was a matter of just applying that to the stuff that I'm interested in. Sure. So it was kind of just married together in a way that I work well in and that I'm also interested in. Mm -hmm. So how was uh, going to Rhode Island School of Design? What was that experience like for you? Did you enjoy it? Was it a struggle at the time? I, uh, you know, there's, there's always this discussion about whether uh, young, younger artists today, if they want to go to art school or not, and they're Mm -hmm. not really sure. Um, I'm biased because I loved it and I feel like it going to RISD kind of shaped who I am today is not only as an artist, but as a person. Mm-hmm. Um, so I have nothing but good things to say about it. It was, it was challenging and it, it kind of opened my eyes to different people and different ways of approaching art. Um, so I can't really say enough good things about going there. Uh huh. So then you would say you would be for <laughs> art school in general i mean i know, well, you know you, that's a special case you went to a very good school but man, for these other kids do you think it's something that it's that they should seek out or it's a it's a tough it's a tough thing to answer because mm-hmm. I, i'm not going to tell you you should go to art school to study painting right that's ridiculous but if you <laughs> want to get into a design trade like industrial design or architecture or even graphic design i think you do need some kind of formal training mm-hmm. that's not that that's not to say that you need to go to school and go broke and pay off debts for the rest of your entire life <laughs> right but you know there are there if you do want to be if you want to work in this pop culture space that is 
very illustration heavy and does have a design side to it. I think today, especially, there are ways for artists to have the training and the skills that they need and also have a career in it without having to have gone to a really expensive school. Mm -hmm. And granted, the times are very, very different today than the mm -hmm. 20 years ago that I went to art school. It was, it was way more different to get a design job mm -hmm. back then than it is now. Yeah. Um, so I can't, I think if you feel like you need as, as an artist to go to art school, then you, and you have the means to do that, then I absolutely say go there because it would be worth it. But if, if, if financially it's not an option and in your heart you feel like you don't need it, I do think that it's possible to follow that path professionally, but I do suggest going out and trying to get some sort of formal training, whether it be free life drawing classes, um, online Skillshare classes, um, taking some kind of typography course, learning the fundamentals of design and how to work with them. Mm -hmm. I think that's ultimately going to benefit you if you're right. going to try to go without going to art school. Because I, I look back to when I graduated from high school, mm -hmm. and if I if I think about could I have had the career that I have now and I didn't go to art school when I left high school? No way. <laughs> I, I didn't know what the hell I was doing when I left high school before I went and studied art. So you know, maybe times are different today, but I, I do think you need to you need to study that craft. Right. Okay. So one last question and I'll let you move on, Mark. I know you're itching to, to move on. <laughs> no, no, no. It's all good. This so, is great. So going to a high profile school like RISD and stuff, was it uh, a competitive program? I think like most design, uh, wherever you go, it's pretty, it's pretty rough. It can be pretty competitive and cutthroat. But <laughs> how was it there for you? Was it, was it a healthy competitive? <laughs> uh, you know, it's, it, the first thing they tell you when you go to visit a school like RISD is it's your first year is basically like art boot camp, they call yeah. it. I mean, it sounds silly, but you know, your our first year there was really like the fundamentals of design, drawing, 2D design, 3D design. You're not worrying about majors or anything mm -hmm. like that. You're literally just experimenting as an artist. But they, they kind of, I remember my first day that that we went up there to visit the school uh, when I was still in high school, and we were in this conference room with all these potential people that wanted to go to RISD, and the people from the school were talking to us, and they were, you know, kind of trying to instill fear in us about <laughs> how rigorous the program is, and it was right. like, you know, this is like design boot camp, you're going to be working all night, not sleeping, working through on really difficult projects, um, that are due with really short timelines and they're going to be, you're going to, you're going to not sleep at all. And you could see by looking around the class, around that room, the, the people that were going to end up going, the people who weren't, because I was sitting there like, like, are you serious? Like I had to stay up all night and draw. <laughs> that sounds fucking incredible. And then the people that were like, Oh my God, I, I need to sleep every night. They obviously yeah. just weren't, they had no interest in doing it, but for, you know, it's 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 not scary to people who want to do the work. You know, it's only scary to people who aren't sure that they want to be an artist. So, mm -hmm. yeah, that first year is for sure rigorous and difficult. And, you know, you're going to you, you're going to see a lot of people crying in the stairwell because their <laughs> critiques went terrible. And yep. it's it's all just stuff to kind of 
um, get you prepared for the real world. But once, you know, that, and that first year really is more, builds more camaraderie, I think, than competition. Mm-hmm. But I think once you kind of get into your major, especially, you know, those, those designers, they're, especially graphic designers are just fucking assholes, you know, and they, they always want to try to, you know, you'll, you'll never get like, like good critiques from a graphic designer. So it's like, oh, well, you know, so there, there's obviously that, that competition right there, but I think it was all, it was all pretty healthy. I, you know, if you ask any other person that went to art school, maybe they'd tell you something different, but um, that's, you know, I, I felt like it was, it was certainly a healthy experience. Yeah. yeah. And then so right after school, did they um, did you get a job right out of school or did you have a period where you were looking? Uh, I did. I mean, it was kind of a weird, <clears throat> a weird path because, you know, being in the graphic design program there, they kind of instill in you that that after school you need to work at Pentagram or Landor or one of the big type foundries mm-hmm. and you need to be typesetting annual reports and like that's the coolest job that you can ever have and it was like and for me that was that was the most boring shit imaginable (laughs) right Um, and I knew like that wasn't going to be the path for me so I I, my portfolio was ridiculous and we go to these portfolio reviews with all these like big name design firms and they would all tell me my stuff was complete shit because it was mostly like comic book drawings (laughs) and like stupid weird stuff that I made in shop class and just completely random stuff. Mm-hmm. So it was just kind of a matter of finding a place where that personality fit in. And my first job out of school was working for this uh, toy company slash novelty housework company called uh, Fred and Friends. It was a mm-hmm. local company in Rhode Island. And that that name, you probably never heard of them, but I can guarantee you that you've seen their weird-ass products before because <laughs> they're in, like, every museum store and every, like, design uh, shop and every museum, you know, all those kinds yeah. of stores. And it was I don't even remember how I got hooked up with them, but it was just a matter of me showing up with, like, a plastic bag with, like, random projects in it and some, like, shitty portfolio with these, like, weird-ass drawings <laughs> in them. And the, the director there, who is now a good friend of mine today, looked at it and was like, yeah, man, this stuff's okay, but, you know, your sense of humor is just really weird, so you're going to fit in fine. <laughs> and that was, kinda, that was my first job out of, out of, uh, out of college. Oh, sounds like a good place to start. <laughs> so uh, I'm going to jump forward here. And okay. we, so the next chapter that I wanted to cover is the 3D kind of design that you do. So for me, getting introduced to your work was... I think it was one of the charts show um, shows at Gallery 1988. So I was following you because of your illustration. And I didn't find out about this until more recently that you have this background in products uh, and 3D design. But a few years ago, and you mentioned it already in this conversation that you work for Reebok. Um, and on your... Your website, you have some links to some previous projects through them where you were designing shoes for Marvel. Yep. Um, it, how did that come to be? So I guess you were in, employed with Reebok, or was this a freelance situation? I was a, I was a staff employee there, yeah. Okay, so were you there as uh, like a graphic designer or a shoe designer? Uh, well, first of all, I appreciate uh, bringing that up. Thank you. I think most people who know <laughs> me for whatever reason, it's probably because of my poster work and my kind of half-assed illustration stuff, uh, which I don't really <laughs> consider myself an illustrator at all. It's just kind of like that world that I ended up in. But 
after a couple of years of working at Fred, there was this kind of ambiguous role that came up for Reebok, which was also in the New England area. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't very clearly defined. And I don't think the role ever really was during my day. I was there for about eight years. So once I started there, I, I kind of started out as a graphic designer and they didn't really know what to do with that role. They just think they just figured that they needed a graphic designer there. And I was working <laughs> primarily on, on footwear, uh, logos, or sock liners, or random patterns that they needed. And that kind of evolved a bit into uh, working on footwear primarily in terms of colors and materials. Um, and then slowly that moved into working on sports license shoes, NFL, MLB, then structural design of shoes, um, some apparel work. Uh, and then towards the end there, it, it, I kind of transitioned into this role of designing sports equipment and protective gear and accessories, which is really cool, which was like kind of full three-dimensional industrial design. So the role really <laughs> kind of evolved all over my tenure yeah. there. Uh, it just kind of changed in whatever direction that I, I work best in. But as you mentioned before, I, I work on a lot of weird stuff. So any company that I've ever worked for, it's always been kind of a, a jack-of-all-trades thing where I move back and forth between different departments and different projects um, depending on where they needed me. I don't think I've ever really had like a really defined role anywhere. Mm-hmm. But the, yeah, the Marvel shoe was a, was one of my favorite projects there, um, obviously because you know that was the merging of two worlds at the time where I was... Yeah. Working on sports stuff during the day and then coming home and then doing silly Captain America drawings at night. And that was kind of the perfect opportunity to bring that realm into my day job. Did they know your, did your employers or your bosses know that you had this passion for pop culture and they approached you with that knowledge? Or is this just a super happy coincidence? Uh, I'm thinking at the time it was kind of a super happy coincidence. Mm-hmm. Mostly because, you know, if you work, when you work at a footwork company, you're working on running or you're working on training or you're working on classics. And then you have these licensed projects that come in like NFL, MLB, Marvel, Hasbro, you know, all kinds of weird stuff. And these are weird product projects that kind of float between categories, which Mm -hmm. was kind of the perfect, you know, kinds of work where I was as kind of a catch all there. And it yeah. kind of landed in my lap, and I was like, "Yeah, I'm gonna, I'm gonna work on this one. I, I got this one." <laughs> <laughs> what um, programs were you using while you were doing this these jobs? Uh, I pretty much used Illustrator. Okay. For ninety nine percent of everything. Oh, okay. In- including posters up until maybe a couple years ago. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. Okay. <laughs> I've only just started to kind of like move into Photoshop, and it's like, oh, this is way easier. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So when you finished college, though, what did you what was kind of the dream for you to go into if it wasn't these specific jobs that you that you did eventually end up getting? Um, Did you did you want to go into a more illustration based, uh, you know, uh, type of job or or was it going to always be like graphic design? I had no idea. Okay, I think that was I think that's kind of still a problem for younger designers that they don't realize the kinds of opportunities there are within the the bigger view of the industry. Like there are jobs that uh, for design teams within giant corporations that make products or websites or anything really. So mm-hmm. I think at the time I just wasn't really sure 
what was available because mm-hmm. while you're in school, they like I said, they want you to kind of join these big type foundries and big design firms and agencies, and then that's all you kind of think of in your head. But then, mm-hmm. you know, once you kind of get exposed to the entire sports athletic industry, fashion industry, uh, toy industry, you know, there's even Target or Walmart or CVS have their own design teams in the companies. Right. So it's just a matter of understanding that design jobs exist at almost every company you can think of. Um, and I think that's that's just something that's hard to grasp or really be aware of uh, as a younger designer. Yeah. So I wasn't really sure what I was looking for once I graduated. I just think I just wanted a job. Like I just needed to like, <laughs> sure. like be able to afford an apartment and like have a job. Right. <laughs> so I was like kind of willing to take it anything and i just happened to land something that was uh really cool and it was also still in rhode island which was you know beneficial for me because i wanted to stay where everyone else thought that felt like they needed to move to new york or chicago or boston and had land like a huge corporate job right well that's a good transition probably and so then you're at reebok and then from reebok you go to nickelodeon is that right yeah i uh about four years ago uh, my wife also worked at Reebok, and um, she got a really good job opportunity in, in Manhattan. And I was like, all right, well, you know, fuck it, let's do it. So <laughs> we sold the house, sold the cars, uh, moved down to New York, and she started working here. And then for about six months, I was freelancing full-time uh, on my own from home, mm-hmm. and I fucking hated it. <laughs> I was going completely insane and depressed being at home in my pajamas all day um, <laughs> while everyone, it, I think maybe like if it was in, in a different area, it would have been okay. But being in the, like the middle of Manhattan while everyone is out like running around the streets like maniacs and in the hustle and bustle mm-hmm. and I'd go out for lunch and like everyone would be like, like frantically going around in the pace that New York has. And I'd be like <laughs> on my own clock, like what do y'all you know, run around for like maniacs. Like, yeah. And I felt kind of, I felt kind of left out from that, <laughs> that hectic, you know, I, and I felt, I felt lazy. So after about six months, I was like, I got to get a fucking job. I can't do this anymore. I'm like losing my mind. And I had were started. You, were you busy during that period though with freelance projects? Like, did you have a full plate of uh, freelance work to do? Yeah, I had, I was working for, I had plenty of work. And, and at the time I was working on the charts one gallery show. Mm, um, okay. so, which was taking up, you know, working on gallery shows takes up a tremendous amount of time. Um, yeah. So I was busy, yeah. but the problem was like I was so busy that I'd be working all day in my pajamas, and then you know, Marissa <laughs> would get home from work and she'd be like, "Oh, you want to go out for dinner?" And I'd be like, oh, "You know, I've been here all day. I might as well just stay." And then I'd work <laughs> all night, and then that cycle just kept repeating until I was like yeah. super miserable being home all the time, and then. Finally, you know, I had started freelancing for Nickelodeon uh, from home, and then finally, I was like, "Guys, like, I, I, I gotta come in. I got, I have to like, <laughs> I have to go back to work." You must got, give me a desk. Yeah, that is, please. That is usually the other way around, isn't it? Uh, usually, people <laughs> yeah. are begging to work from home in their pajamas all day and not yeah. ever leave the house. Well, I, th- you know, yeah. I, I had been accustomed to doing it for ten years before that. Mm-hmm. So it was like it was just what I was used to doing, and 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 I think that I can still do that if I was not living in a four hundred square foot apartment 
and I right. wasn't in an area where every other person was working all the time. Mm-hmm. It's just that that external pressure of of feeling like I need to work outside mm-hmm. and not wanting to be cooped up into a, in a tiny box all day. Sure. I think yes. if I were in any other place on the planet where I was living in like a place that was really nice to be in all day. Suburbia. And yeah. yeah, maybe well, maybe not suburbia. Let's not go that far. <laughs> but maybe somewhere anywhere other than New York, I feel like I could right. probably maintain my sanity working at home all day. And, and I and I do think that eventually that's going to be in my future. But for I, I do actually enjoy like leaving mm-hmm. the yeah. house every day and going and being a part of society. I feel like that's a healthy thing right, to yeah. do for an artist. So what kind of stuff were you doing for Nickelodeon at that point when you were doing freelance? Because um, that's a big client and uh, I'm sure a lot of people would like to work for them. What did, what did you like? How did you get that work and what kind of work were you doing? Uh, I actually went in for an interview for a job there and they were like, oh, yeah, great. Let's just start out with some freelance work and see how it goes. Mm-hmm. And we were just doing some like really small projects like um doing graphics on cars for marketing promotional things just mm-hmm. really like mm. projects just to test my competency i think and right. then yeah. one of the things that we talked about while i was interviewing there was that they do a lot of style guide work for their animation properties and stuff which mm. looked i had never done before but looked really interesting to me so when it came to the point of when i decided that i really wanted to work there i actually on my own time put together a style guide uh, just to kind of show them that this is something that's interesting for me to do and that I can do it to, to mm. prove that in a way. And I know a lot of people will say, don't do work for free, but there does come a point where you're going to need to prove yourself, especially in an arena where you have no previous work before. Mm-hmm. Um, so I literally yeah. like stayed up for an entire week and I cranked out an entire like SpongeBob style guide and I emailed it to him and I was like, hey, I made this, just want to show you that I can do this. And then two weeks later, I was sitting at a desk there, and then they never kicked me out. <laughs> <laughs> so then, so as soon as I got there, I started working on the, I think my first project was this, the first SpongeBob movie style guide. Mm-hmm. And they were like, oh, all right, you can do this stuff. Well, why don't you do the Turtles, the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles core style guide? And I was like, uh, yep, I'll do that. And then I think that was like... So- <laughs> yeah, that was my first like big project there. That was pretty awesome. Uh, so every episode, I know you haven't listened to all of them yet, but every episode we talk <laughs> about Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles at some point. Oh my god! Yeah, that's the connecting point. So what was the thing that you did? You created a style guide for turtles. Yeah. So there. So you know, large brands and properties have a core style guide. It's basically mm-hmm. their main uh, graphic direction for the brand that that leaches out into everything. It's kind of the overarching umbrella for design DNA. Is this so, for uh, internal or for uh, like vendors and things like that for everyone this, to use? This is for everything. Mm-hmm. Uh, so this this is a... They're generally huge style guides that have lots of different sections. And this right. is an oversimplification of it, but it's really... Part one is to demonstrate what the graphic language is and how it should how it should feel really. Mm-hmm. And then there are specific designs that you do. And then there's, you take those designs and you break them down into individual elements 
so that other people can put them together in a way that not only makes sense, but also still speaks in the same language of the brand. And that's really right. where the challenge of, of working on style guides is. So that would, that would be an example of what like a core style guide is, like the core look for the brand. Mm-hmm. But I thought like, there are like things called fast fast fashion packs or seasonal guides that are. I'm sure you know a lot about this doing work for for Disney, but every brand has these like small mini guides that are very on trend and that speak to a specific consumer base at a specific time that vendors will then use to put on any kind of product. And those are kind of short lived. But that right. first that first Turtles style guide was for. Uh, a complete refresh of the brand look uh, for their core, their core look. Mm-hmm. Is this so, for the current, the current show that's on? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, okay. the current series that's on there right now. Okay, go ahead, Mark. Sorry, I keep cutting you off. <laughs> oh no, no, it's all good. I have a a question about. So you like created your own um, style guide to present. Did so. I I don't think we've actually talked about this um, on the podcast before, but. We just, I just mentioned it to both of you prior to jumping on for this record. I work for Mazda, and we have brand guidelines as well. Mm-hmm. Um, the way that they come up with the guidelines is like they'll have you know the chief creative officer and all the creative directors for the agency get together and be like, okay, this is what we want the brand to look like moving forward. How Were you aware of what the brand would look like or for uh, SpongeBob? Or were you taking elements that you thought the brand could and should look like? Like, was this your pitch for branding or were you taking existing elements and just putting it together in a style guide? For for the turtle guide, you mean? Oh, for the your original pitch that you oh, for that one? did on your, on your own. Yeah. Uh, that was, I don't know what that was. That was like <laughs> me just trying to show that I could design a whole bunch of shit in a really small amount of time. And it was probably it was pretty much before I really understood the intricacies of and the purposes of style guides. I really just that was just to show them that I can work in different styles. Okay. That all kind of speak the same language. Without I didn't actually expect that they'd ever use it. It was just a matter of I I don't want to do car graphics for you guys anymore. I want to show you that I <laughs> I can do I can come up with new ideas and for brands yeah. that have existed for twenty years and push them in new directions. It was more kind of demonstrative than than actually expecting them to to use mm-hmm. that. So, yeah. were you doing character poses and things like that, or or what? <laughs> yeah, for what the, was, well, for that yeah. for that pitch, yeah, I just drew a bunch of sponge pictures of SpongeBob. Um, right. But for but for the the same question, but for what I do there regularly, it's mm-hmm. the the direction kind of initiates from. Like our creative director and our VPs are like, we like this idea. Like, mm-hmm. what do you think of this? And then it's just a matter of doing an exploratory is what we'd call it, where I kind of go through all different kinds of ideas, all different kinds of looks and say, these are kind of what I'm feeling that, that are in the same voice as what, as what you were thinking. Mm-hmm. And then it's a matter of back and forth about, okay, we like this one. We like elements of this one. Let's combine that into something new and unique. And then once we kind of land on a central concept, then it would be my responsibility to kind of blow that out into an entire visual language uh-huh. um, while simultaneously figuring out the rules of that language. 
Right. Um, right. And in terms of how we approach character art, there is an entire character illustration team that works at Nickelodeon that does the approved on-model poses as well as the Burbank team that does the animation. And they'll provide the official poses for, you know, whatever the style guides are. Mm-hmm. But, but in terms of my role, there is a lot of opportunity to be able to take the characters and do new things with them that, yeah. mm-hmm. that aren't in the same style as the character illustration because the character illustrations are a very specific certain way. Mm-hmm. And if you're going to draw them that way, I can't do it. You know, the, 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 those other guys need to do it. But if you're going to draw mm-hmm. them in any other way that fits right. in maybe with a seasonal theme or a different trend, then that's something that, that I'll do. And I do like doing that because, yeah, I want to sit around drawing turtles, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> that's so you get to put your own spin on it or create sort of a style for that that could be used in a in sort of a smaller style guide. Is that correct? Yeah, for the most part. Yeah. Cool. I think that sounds like a lot of fun. <laughs> oh yeah. Are there how many so how many style guides or how many properties have you worked on within uh the Nickelodeon umbrella on uh, the style guides? For style guides, it's pretty much just been SpongeBob and Turtles, Turtles. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is fine. That's totally fine for me. <laughs> um, but I've worked on a lot of the '90s stuff, especially for the. I mean, you've seen some of the the San Diego Comic Con booth that I'll that I've worked on, mm-hmm. um, where we get to kind of touch on every single property, especially yeah. from '90s stuff, and that's that's always fun to branch out to. I think my knowledge is specifically geared towards Turtles, as you can imagine. But yeah, I've been able to to kind of work on a lot of different properties there. So the next, you just gave me a perfect transition yeah. to go into <laughs> the the booth design. Um, so just like all the other chapters of this uh, episode, how did you get into booth design? Is this just kind of goes back to your being a jack of all trades? Did Nickelodeon were they aware that you had? Um, experience with 3D design and said like, hey, help us build or design our booth for Comic-Con? Uh, How did that whole project come to be? I'm still trying to figure that out. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I think, yeah, they, I mean, they're obviously familiar with my background in, in product. I think that's one of the reasons why they hired me because style guides inherently are married to product. You know, those two things, mm-hmm. you know, are synonymous. Um, but when it comes to actual 3D structural design, I think I don't think you need to necessarily be a specialist in it to to work on something like like the the booth or any other kind of three dimensional object. I just think you need to be able to 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 have a concept and have an idea, and then mm-hmm. be able to extrapolate that into a bigger story. It's similar in a way to doing a style guide. I think mm-hmm. uh, I think worrying too much about the specifications of how the fuck am I going to build a giant pineapple <laughs> is not how is not how you would start that project it's just a matter yeah. of i want to make a big pineapple what would it look like that that kind of thing yeah um especially and we did like a really cool wood uh mural uh that was kind of a big art piece in, behind this the signing table mm-hmm. and I could tell you that we didn't start out by measuring pieces of wood to do it. It was a matter of <laughs> like, what is this thing supposed to look like? What could it look like? And what's the idea behind it? And the idea was, okay, I want it. People are going to sit there and sign stuff and I want it to look like they're going to get slimed. 
and that's kind of where that the idea started and then you kind of say you figure out what your gesture is what that what that form is what how does it flow Mm -hmm. from a bigger picture perspective and then you kind of once you have that then you zoom in and focus on the details and the middle kind of fills itself in later on so I'm looking at the booth. It's it's crazy. It's beautiful. Like, uh, <laughs> so, well, let me let me cut you off really quick, Jared. Okay. So there's two. You did this for 2016 and 2017. Yeah. The Nickelodeon booth. So what you were just talking about with the signing was this year's. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, just in case you're jumping around, Jared, are you looking at? Are going to talk about 2016 or 17 booth? 17. Okay. No, so I was talking. Yeah, yeah. I was still still talking about 17 but i was just curious when uh so comic-con is in july every year middle of july-ish um when did you start Mm -hmm. the process for putting this concept together uh well it's important to understand that i'm not the only person working on this thing it's Mm -hmm, a gigantic (laughs) group effort with a lot of people and moving parts and i think you know the the concept the initial idea of we want to have different activations within a booth that feel like you're in a world is kind of incepted um, by the creative directors and the VPs, you know, long before comic con. Mm -hmm. And then I'll start to do the nitty gritty design work and painting and illustrating and designing probably about two months before (laughs) Maybe like two and a half months because right before that is licensing show in Vegas where they also have another enormous, crazy, impressive booth. And I don't work on that one, but it's the same people who are involved and they're kind of super busy with that. And then right after licensing show, they go into San Diego Comic-Con where then I'll kind of pick up on and start designing, doing the, the design work and then literally like we're sending out files two days before the convention starts to the fabricator (laughs) and then they're getting to the show on Sunday I think and they Mm -hmm. start building everything and even up to that moment they're going out and printing stuff and then coming back and it's it's literally a process up until the show opens my goodness. For, for something like that's that. That's insane. I was it, expecting you to say that you're starting right now on next year's. That's what I was. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No. I mean, maybe, maybe, you know, maybe my directors and VPs are maybe thinking about it now and thinking mm-hmm. about how that could work, but I'm not going to start the actual physical design process until, you know, two months before, maybe. Wow. So that's when, incredibly impressive. I wonder if you could talk a little bit. We'll post pictures of this on the site or, or post links to it on your website. Uh-huh. Uh, what aspect, what what part of it specifically then did you work on? I'm looking at the big mural that you were talking about there, which is pretty incredible. But uh, <laughs> are you are you are you involved at the sort of conceptual stage and then get to carry a lot of this through? Or are they coming to you and saying, fill this space or fill this wall with a graphic? Yeah, it's kind of a little bit of both. I think like they knew from the start that they wanted a giant pineapple. Mm-hmm. Uh, so once that idea started, then our fabrication team will be like, all right, we need to figure out how this thing will be built. Mm-hmm. While at the same time, I'm trying to figure out how it can be painted to yeah. make it look like it, it comes from SpongeBob's world. 
So then there's a process of back and forth of I'm painting this, send it to the, uh, to the fabricator and then they put it on their template and they're like, okay, well this needs to be adjusted. So they send it back and then I'll repaint it. And then you go back and forth a few times until all the pieces fit together. So again, that, that part's a super collaborative process. Um, with the, with the wood mural thing, that was kind of a weird one because the brief was basically we wanted a big art piece on that mm-hmm. wall, make something. Which yeah. is which was cool for me because you know when you work in corporate design, it's always a matter of the bureaucracy and all the cooks in the kitchen need to have their opinion added to mm. everything. So it's hard to take full credit for any project, really. Right. Sure. But but in a, in the situation for that, it was literally a matter of like I want to make this giant fucking slime thing, and they're like, mm. oh, all right, cool, <laughs> make it. And that was that was kind of like the part that I'm most proud of because it's. I got uh, boogers on it. I got a fart, mm-hmm. and that was really cool that I could put that stuff on. I had vomit on there, but they made me take it off. <laughs> um, <laughs> and then the rest of the, and then the rest of it again. It's like, yeah, we need Hey Arnold stepping on a fire hydrant that's going to be three dimensional. So mm-hmm. you know, in a case like that mm-hmm. where Arnold needs to be on model, the the character our team will draw Arnold. And then I'll get them and undo the specs of how big he's supposed to be, how thick the board's going to be, where he's arranged. And then the fabrication team will then say, all right, this is a rough dimensions of the fire hydrant. And then I'll take those dimensions and figure out what the flat artwork is going to be so that they can then print it and apply it to it and then do all the other technical specs about how the other elevations are are laid out. It's and then all the patterns that are on the walls are all created. What else? I mean the the rug. Yeah. Which is like <laughs> like every single thing is considered. The slime hanging from the logo at the ceiling. I mean all of that stuff needs to be drawn and designed and then teched mm-hmm. out and then sent to production and then sent to the fabrication team. So it's a constant flow and back and forth between everyone. So when you're doing something like the pineapple and you're and you're trying to sort of create that uh, you know emulate that SpongeBob style like a background in the animation, do you get to sort of uh, do you get to sort of drive that and decide what looks like SpongeBob's background, or does it go through this whole process of approvals and SpongeBob people and specialists take a look at it, or or do you get to sort of hold the keys to that at that uh, stage for this project? For for that specifically, no, I just drew it and tried to make it look like SpongeBob the best as possible. The, mm-hmm. the the bureaucracy really comes in when characters are involved, especially mm-hmm. if they're supposed to be on model. Yeah, um, right. that's really this this the tough part. But like for the mural that had a bunch of characters on them that were mashed up, like there was nothing that needed to go through the rank except you know taking the vomit off of there, pretty much. <laughs> um, but for the pineapple, it's like you know I'm well versed enough in SpongeBob at this point to know right. what it's supposed to look like. Mm-hmm. So there's also a point where they trust me to get it right. Yeah. You know. So I'm looking again at basically everything you just described with this the booth for this year's Comic-Con. It's like every single wall you just kind of went through the entire wall. Did you have did you work on every single aspect of this booth? I mean, I certainly touched on every <laughs> single aspect of it. I mean, like I said, if it's got a character that's on model, I didn't necessarily draw it, but 
uh-huh. I did figure out where it's supposed to go and like what the technical specs to send to the fabricator are, how it's going to be made, uh-huh. um, and that sort of thing. That's awesome. Did you? They, so I know. I think it was 2016. You were responsible for a lot of the apparel designs. Oh yeah. And they had this year. They had a. I don't know if they had this for last year's, but this year you could like go up to these touch kiosk or these touch screens and pick different designs for t-shirts and then like color them in on your own. Mm. Did you, were you responsible for any of the artwork on the tees or the apparel this year? Some of them. I think, uh, Mm. there was another team that worked on the peripherals, but that was a matter of Mm. taking the artwork that I had done for the booth, like the patterns and the giant mural wall and the textures and stuff. Right. And then handing it over to them to be able to design the signs and the staff tees and um, what was, and, the, some of the designs that were on the shirts, I think there was, I don't really know what was available for design, so I can't speak to taking responsibility for that at all, but I think they used, they might have used some of the graphics that were from the, the mural that was there. Gotcha. But that's like yeah. a whole, that whole interactive display is kind of a, another, another mm-hmm. team that works on that <laughs> thing. Like there's so many people that are, involved with trying to make that thing happen like I, I i don't ever try to take full responsibility for for that project but at the same time like i did have a you know, i did work on that for like two straight freaking months every single day <laughs> <laughs> well i have to say that what well, you know of comic-con san diego comic-con is enormous and pretty much every significant pop culture brand has some sort of a presence there and whether or not you're a fan of Nickelodeon, they have it's got to be one of the most impressive booths, if not the most impressive booth at the convention. <laughs> oh, thank you. It's and I mean, I'm not even just saying that because you're on here. It, it's <laughs> incredible what uh, what they're able to accomplish. Um, and it's really cool that you are a part of that whole collaboration. Um, for sure. So, so for let me, before you move on, so for someone, because <laughs> uh, I always want to get this part in, so for someone who wants to do work for Nickelodeon, whether that's uh, a, a designer or a character artist, or maybe not animation, because that seems like it's its own uh, separate path. What what is your recommendation for someone who wants to to work for the company? Uh, oh, you mean how do you get big clients and do awesome work? I mean, <laughs> if, if, you, if anyone finds out the answer to that, like, let me know. But. Well, I mean, like, do you think they should work on, focus on existing character properties as opposed to original art or like a mix of it? Like what, what would you recommend for someone who wants to work for one of the studios? And, and again, not animation because that has such specific requirements. Sure. Um, so, but you know, anything you can offer. It, you know, it depends on what stage of your career that you're in. I think if you're early on in your career and you're expecting to land a giant client, it's just, I have no advice for you. It's just a matter of <laughs> like working for a really long time and earning it in a way. Mm-hmm. Um, I think if you're, if you're more experienced in your career, I think, I'm not really sure. I think, um, going to these shows and connecting with people and uh-huh. getting phone numbers, and handing out business cards is probably step one. Um, mm-hmm. If you can get a contact email, it's a, a giving a, giving a cold call or an email with your work. If you're confident enough in doing that is probably mm-hmm. step two. I, I don't actually have a good answer for that because for <laughs> me, and I think for a lot of other people work 
has this snowball effect. Like, uh-huh. I, I don't, I don't, I'm not good at getting new clients. I don't, I don't really know how it happens the same way. I don't know how like gravity works. It's just, right. you know, it's kind of, you start doing work at the beginning and then that work gets other work and that work snowballs into more work than you can ever handle. And then all of a sudden, like you're getting emails from brands that you've admired your entire life. And, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's an awesome thing. And I don't know how it happened or how to tell someone else how to get that other than keep fucking working. And then hopefully <laughs> your work will then snowball into that, those sort of projects, you know, mm-hmm. be consistent with doing your work, be tenacious about promoting yourself and be passionate about the work that you do. And that work will come. That's great. I think that is probably the most honest answer I think anyone can really give because I think that's mm-hmm. the case. I think we're kind of guessing if we're if we say more than that. But from a from a skill side of things, like you have an incredibly diverse uh, portfolio, uh, whether that's doing your own style, which is very distinct and successful with, with the stuff you've done for the gallery. You're able to draw things on model. You're able to work with text and type and uh, things like that. Do you think that that is uh, uh, like a, a recommendation for people to be that versatile as opposed to going one style, one personal style? Yeah, I think if you ask 20 artists, they're going to give you 20 different opinions right, on it. Right, I right. think it's important to be a well-rounded artist because sometimes we get stuck working within the pixels on our computer screens. Um, and it's just important to, to be able to take a step back and have a broader view of design, mm-hmm. especially by working on things that we perceive as outside the realm of what we usually work on. Right. So challenging yourself is, is really important. So taking on projects that take you out of your comfort zone and working on those areas that you might not be interested in or are particularly weakened uh, is always going to be beneficial. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's more and more now today, especially if you want to work with corporate clients, you either need a super duper strong recognizable style, or you need to be extremely versatile in the amount of work that you can um, handle. Mm-hmm. So there's not really any room in the middle for, uh, I'm okay at drawing. You know, you either need to be like super focused on what your style is and what your own personal brand is, or you need to be willing to take on anything. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. And for me, you know, my personal recommendation would be to diversify as much as possible because it's only going to make you a better better artist, which Mm -hmm. I think at the end of the day, anybody would want. You know, it's like, it's kind of like working out. Like if you want to make your arms strong, you have to work your biceps and your triceps. If you want to make your core strong, you've got to work your abs and your lower back. Mm-hmm. So you have to work on it as a unit to become a fitter person. So I think if you're an illustrator and you want to be better at being an illustrator, you should sculpt. Right. Um, it'll give you a better understanding of how light adds depth and how to, how to work with, with sculpting with light. Mm-hmm. If you're a graphic designer and you want to get better I think looking into architecture or designing interior spaces to understand how shapes can influence space and form is only going to make you a better graphic designer. So they seem like opposites, but they're, they're complementary in the fact that they, they deal with breaking down yeah. art skills to their core concepts. So working on other areas 
of art that you may or may not ever think about is only going to make it better at the one thing that you want to get actually better at. Mm-hmm. I that think. is fantastic. Yeah. Great answer. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> uh, and, you know, speaking of being super diverse, uh, we've already covered a, just a shitload of different projects you've been <laughs> a part of, um, different areas, different projects. But with such a diverse portfolio and so much different types of projects you've worked on, is there still one that exists or that is out there, a type of project that you haven't touched on, that you haven't been a part of, that you really want to be? Uh, or have you kind of covered everything in you <laughs> at this point? <laughs> uh, I wanted to get into comic books because that, for me, growing up was okay. probably the most influential thing. Um, I've tried to do a comic book on my own before and realized that I'm absolutely fucking terrible at, <laughs> at doing comic books. That is um, a lot of work. It's too. insane. Completely <laughs> insane. I don't know how those guys do it. Um, I mean, it's certainly a labor of love, and I definitely wasn't in love with yeah. it that much. But <laughs> um, I did get the opportunity to work on a cover, which actually comes out tomorrow. My first oh, comic book cover. There so go. there's my first plug. So my first plug of at- the show. If you're listening to this, <laughs> you can buy it now because oh, this yeah, will be released after the fact. But yeah. we'll leave links to that uh, in our show notes so you can definitely pick that. But what's the, the cover? What's the uh, series? For uh, AmeriKarate, number five. All right. Five. Okay, so we'll definitely so I think have to. In terms of projects, I think like I'd like to do more comic book projects. But there's always a list of brands I have in my head that I want to okay. work with. So it's more What are of, some of those? Um, I have one that I nailed down last week. Finally, <laughs> the one that All I've been right. wanting to work with forever. <laughs> I finally got a project with him last Wednesday. That's awesome. So I can't tell you what it is quite yet, you, but uh, that's fine. Are there any that you haven't nailed down last week that you still want to? <laughs> um, I mean, I want to work with the biggest brands in the world. You know, I want to. I want to extend <laughs> my reach with with my work as much as possible. So, I mean, I already have a pretty good amount of companies that I work with consistently, but mm-hmm. um, I'm not going to list out the ones that I have. You can you can look at my client <laughs> list and see the ones that aren't aren't there, aren't, aren't <laughs> on there, those. and just those are the ones that I want to be on there. Gotcha. All right. So before we wrap up, there's a couple of just rapid fire questions I want to throw at you, kind of like either ors, uh, and feel free to expand on them Ooh. as much as you'd like. This okay. is a new so, section. Here we go. Oh, no. Yeah, I'm excited uh, to it, hear this too. It'll, it'll, it'll go really quick unless unless Anthony wants to you know expand on these. So um, here we go. Screen prints or G. Clay? Uh, screen, screen prints all the way. I can extract. I, I had a feeling. I, yeah. yeah. Well, the reason is like, I think screen prints in and of themselves as a product are a piece of artwork because mm-hmm. of their their limited their limited mm-hmm. factor. They're kind of they're kind of fleeting in a way. Like only a hundred mm-hmm. of these are made, and I think those hundred screen prints exist collectively as one piece of art. Does that make any sense at all? Yeah, no. Totally. Whereas if someone has the JPEG of the poster, they can print out another G Clay at any time. And it'll look exactly like the last one. Right. Whereas yeah. with screen printing, even though they are being duplicated exactly, there's always 
a little bit of the hand involved with each one, and I feel like that's just enough to make them each unique. Also, there's a lot more that you can do with screen printing, I, I think, personally, in terms of um, layering inks and mm. different substrates and a lot of things that make the final product unique as, as a piece that you can hold. Yeah, Whereas yeah. the the main idea for having a G clay is to maintain the quality of the original artwork as much as humanly possible. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So do you still have, uh, I think you mentioned in an interview previously that you have uh, like a studio for, for screen printing. Do you still do that? Or is that uh, a when while I, back? When I, well, when I lived in Rhode Island, I, I, I kind of shared a, a screen printing studio with uh, Ghost mm. Town Studios. Uh, but I don't live in Rhode Island anymore. So right, right. I, don't, I don't get to do that. <laughs> I don't get to print my own stuff anymore, unfortunately. Ah, okay. <laughs> Next one, 24 by 36 or 18 by 24? Hmm. I like 24 by 36 because you can cram in way more information uh, in a more legible way mm -hmm. than you can with 18 by 24. I feel like, especially if we're talking about charts, I think they have to be 24 by 36 because in terms of legibility with type size and negative space and space in between text. Mm -hmm. But not everyone has 24 by 36 space on their wall. Um, yeah. That's a tough one. I think uh, I'd always rather go bigger. Always go go bigger, go home. <laughs> always. All right. So last one. Uh, this kind of goes into the type of work that you do. Uh, would you rather be doing illustration on prints and posters or 3D design? Oh, I think it's pretty obvious by now that I can't pick. I can't, I can't choose between any one thing. Like that's that. That's my plight. I can't. Uh, I can't stick with one damn thing. Right. I think. Well, I, I think if I. I think if I were just drawing all day in the same style, I'd get really fucking bored. Yeah. Yeah. I that's not like, that. and that's not a critique. I mean, to anyone that has like really solid styles and can draw the same thing over and over, like all the power to them. Like I yeah, just, that's just like, I don't a have personal the, preference. Yeah. I don't have the right, patience yeah. for that. Like I get, I get bored really easily of everything. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All so right, then well, I have right, one, before, I, let me get one last question okay. then. Cause I didn't Jared's even know what we were going to do. I would have done fine. <laughs> uh, favorite star Wars film. Oh, um, prequels, oh. new stuff. Return of the Jedi. That's the cheesy one, right? That's the cheesy <laughs> with the yeah. with the Ewoks. Yeah. <laughs> okay. I, I haven't seen it in a long time, but I'm gonna go with that one just because it's got that sugary coating of nostalgia with all the like the most iconic cheesy parts of Star Wars. <laughs> so I'm gonna pick that one. Okay. Great. All right. That was my question. <laughs> okay. <laughs> that was an easy one. Yeah. All right. So before we let you go. Is there anything specifically that you're working on right now that you'd like to plug? Uh, we mentioned that you have the comic book that you did the cover for coming out. Or if you're listening to this, it is out, so you should go buy it. Um, <laughs> but are there any other projects that you're excited to uh, talk about or that you can talk about? Well, that's kind of the problem with working with a lot of corporate stuff is that I am excited about what I'm working on, but I can't <laughs> tell you about it for about a year. NDA. So we'll have to get you back. Yeah. We'll have to get you back on okay. after the fact, so you can talk about yeah. uh, all these projects. Yeah, that'd be great. I will be at New York Comic Con in October, though. So I think that's the there next big. There thing. There you go. Next big thing that I'll that I'll be I'll be at. Fantastic. Awesome. 
Um, so that you don't have to say it all, we will have links to your website and all of your social media in our show notes. So if you aren't already following him, please check out the show notes. Go pick up some prints and pins from his website mm-hmm. and give him a follow on all the socials. Um, for us, we are on all the social media. That's Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. We are Squared Co. And our website is squaredco.org. Um, that's it for today. Thank you so much for listening. We'll see you later. Thank you for listening to the Squared Co. podcast with Mark Morris and Jared Maruyama. Goodbye.